Welcome. You've joined the Sexy Lifestyle with Carol and David. Our show is here to help you achieve better, better love, better sex, and a better, more intimate relationship. Are you ready? Take notes and send us your questions. This is the Sexy Lifestyle. Now, here are your hosts, Carol and David. Hey, everyone. Are you ready to spice up your sex life and live happy, healthy, and always horny? Well, you've come to the right place because that's what the Sexy Lifestyle is all about. David and I are passionate about making your sex life the best it can be. We sure are. And, you know, we love talking and learning about everything related to sex and sexuality, sexual health, and, of course, sexual pleasure. We love diving deep into the naughty, the taboo, and the unknown. And we hope our discussions open up your dialogue about great sex because great sex matters and we all deserve it. We sure do. So, did you know that being a people pleaser can affect your sex life? If you or your partner are people pleasers, you may be missing out on a great sex life. On today's show, we're going to dive deep into the effects of being a people pleaser, especially in the bedroom. We'll also find out more about the relationship between libido, desire, and arousal, and get a better understanding of how to deal with guilt and shame around sex. Absolutely. But like we do every show, we want to tell you about our must-have top waterproof blanket, which now comes in four reversible colors because nobody wants to sleep in that wet spot and squirt is hot until it's not. So if you're fed up with having to sleep in that wet spot or having to change your sheets every time you have sex, then you need one of our top waterproof blankets. It's 100% waterproof and leak-proof and keeps your bed and mattress dry no matter how wet it gets. From messy massage oils, silicone lubes, and all sorts of sexy wetness, just throw it in the washer and dryer and it comes out looking like brand new. Yep, and now we have a new sexy pink and blue reversible blanket, both colors representing the ribbons, which support breast cancer and prostate cancer. And to support the cause, we'll donate $5 from each blanket sold to a charity that helps cancer survivors get back in the sack. Because great sex matters, and cancer survivors deserve it too. Absolutely. And you don't have to leave your house to get one. Simply go to Amazon and search Top Waterproof Blanket. That's T-O-P, Waterproof Blanket, and order yours today. Great sex starts now. It sure does, and so does today's show. You know we're Carol and David. This is The Sexy Lifestyle, and we're so excited to welcome today's special guest. Ella Dorval-Hall is a sex educator and a sex and relationship writer. Ella likes to bring a little bit of humor, a lot of honesty, and just the right amount of science to their work. All righty. Ella, thank you so much for being here today, taking time out of your busy writing work that you do. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be talking with you today. And you're probably sitting in some nice warm weather in California. So uh, why don't you just start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the industry of sexuality? Yeah, 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 sure. So um, my name is Ella Dorval Hall. I'm a sexuality educator and sex and relationship writer. Um, and you know, when people ask me this question, my like quick answer is usually, well, I had a lot of really bad sex and it took me a really long time to figure out how to enjoy sex It's sort of the short story of how I became a sexual educator. And the longer version is that I grew up feeling a lot of shame and guilt around sexuality and for a whole number of different reasons, really struggled to enjoy sex for a number of years um, and felt like incredibly broken and incredibly ashamed about the fact that I wasn't enjoying sex. 
Um, and so it was when I was in undergrad that I had the opportunity to start to learn a little bit more about sexuality. And um, I was like, wow, this is this is really interesting. This is really speaking to me. Um, and so after I graduated from undergrad, I was um, like, you know, as I think a lot of other sexuality professionals experience, uh, oftentimes our route to become a sexuality educator is very um, like put together through our own sorts of experiences and then taking courses and reading books and learning a lot of things because oftentimes um, there isn't a very clear path for how to become a sexuality educator. So um, I eventually went on to work at an organization that um, trained teachers and clinicians and anybody who worked with young people on how to teach comprehensive evidence-based sexuality education. Um, so I worked there for a couple of years and I was like, you know, this is really great. This is awesome. And also I don't feel like I'm getting to focus on the aspects of sexuality that made it really hard for me to enjoy sex. And that was learning about like shame and guilt, learning about the pleasure anatomy, learning about like how the heck I'm supposed to say the things that I do and don't like during sex, because that was absolutely terrifying for me. Um, something else that I really struggled with was being super hyper concerned with my performance and like really viewing sex as a performance. Um, so these are some of the examples of things that I was really struggling with with sex and that I didn't feel like I was really getting to work on and teach about in the role that I was in. So I then pivoted and started to become started to work as a freelancer sexuality educator. And so now um, I do some workshops. I used to do more workshops um, and I work one on one with people doing education and coaching. And then a lot of the work that I do is actually as a writer and writing for different sex toy companies, writing for media outlets, um, and writing for sex ed platforms on different sex ed topics. And some of those things are like, you know, how to try temperature play, um, how to try anal play, and then other topics are about some of my own personal experiences. Wow, that sounds great. While you were talking and describing that, I took a note in my head that you said you took some courses in undergrad about sexuality and you went, whoa, I really like this. But what made you take those courses? Yeah, so actually, interesting enough, it was a bit informal. I went to a Catholic college, not... Um, not that wasn't the reason that I went there. I wasn't brought up Catholic, so that wasn't um, part of my decision for going there. Um, but the reason that I mentioned that is because there actually weren't any courses. There were some courses in gender, but not from my recollection, there weren't actually courses in sexual in human sexuality. And so it ended up being through taking an environmental studies course where we were looking at the relationship between gender and natural resources and um looking at uh it's a topic called ecofeminism have either of you heard of that no not no, it not sort not. of looks at the way that both people and natural resources are commodified and exploited under capitalism and patriarchy and white supremacy and so i was like wow i feel like a lot of things i'm learning about i can really connect to some of my personal experiences especially as it relates to sex um and so from there, at the time, I was also really interested in mindfulness and meditation. So then I got to do an independent study looking at the effects of 
mindfulness and meditation on sexual pleasure. Cool. Wow. We could have Ella on our show every week. <laughs> she has so many great topics. <laughs> yeah. But but you know, listening to all this, I'd like to know how how were your parents? How was it growing up in your house? Did you talk about sex? Did your mom or dad take you aside and say, "Here's the talk"? You know, um, no, I never really got the talk. Um, let's see. I we didn't really talk about sex much at all. Um, I sort of got the message that I really got the message that like sex or being a sexual person was dangerous Mm -hmm. um and that it would potentially put me into a bad situation and whether that was like pregnancy or stis or being in a like situation where i was having an unwanted sexual experience Mm -hmm. um and so that was a bit confusing for me because i had this experience of like wow sex and sexuality is really interesting and also that's really bad and that's really dangerous. So I really struggled with feeling that really intense contradiction um, during moments. So like, for example, the first time I ever masturbated, I was, I think like 14 or 15 years old. So I was a bit older than some people talk about their first um, experiences of pleasuring themselves. Um, And I was actually watching the movie Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Have either of you seen that? Yes, we, just we just watched it like two days ago. Yes. It's back on Netflix. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. There's a lot of sex scenes there in are. that movie. Yeah. And I remember being like, wow, that's cool. That that feels pretty good. And like touching myself and exploring that. And then just within like minutes of doing that, being like, this is really bad. I'm doing something that's really bad and I need to stop. Mm. And so I didn't masturbate again for several years. Wow. Um, so... And, you know, another example of how another very distinct example for me of how I had confusing feelings about sex and sexuality was I um, I don't remember how old I was. I must have been like somewhere between like five and ten years old. I got this book about puberty and in it there was this one page that showed how um, the appearance of breasts change as you go through puberty And I was like, wow, this is really cool to look at. And then at the same time being like, oh, this is really bad that you're really interested and really curious about this. Um, So I I didn't my parents didn't really talk to me much about um, sex or sexuality, um, except for getting messages that like it was potentially dangerous Mm -hmm. Um, and that people were going to want to have sex with me and that I that I should be um, aware of that. Got it. So I'm just going to back up a second. So masturbating to forgetting Sarah Marshall, was it Mila Kunis? <laughs> was it was it the way she showed um, her side boobs, her under boobs, her cleavage? Because they did a great job highlighting all that of her. And Carol and I, Carol and I on many occasions have had sex pretending Mila Kunis was there for a threesome. Yeah. I mean, really? Ashton Kutcher too, but Mila Kunis. Oh, yeah. oh, that sounds great. But Ashton Kutcher's not in Forgetting Sarah Marshall. No, but no. he's just yeah, there. Okay, okay got gotcha, you. Gotcha. It's so fun. <laughs> it's so fun that you say that. But when you were in high school and everyone was talking about sex, were you in those conversations or were you just listening? Or like when you, your girlfriend told you about their sexual experiences? So I don't think that I ever had any friends telling me any friends who were girls talking about masturbating 
that was definitely something that I learned was pretty off, like not off limits, but like I got a lot of messages that like, especially girls, and these are like really misogynistic messages, but I got a lot of messages that like, you know, girls who are sexual are, um, you know, like quote risk takers mm-hmm. or somehow quote sexually deviant or quote uh, irresponsible. Mm-hmm. And so um, I also like never had, I don't know that I ever had like one friend that was like, oh yeah, when I masturbate, blah, 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 blah. No, no friends who are girls ever talked about that. Cool. And when it came to like, you know, just generally sex in high school, it's the same thing. I was both like really curious about it and also like totally terrified. Do you remember your first kiss? Yeah, which was a really terrible experience. <laughs> do you remember your first fuck? I do, which was an okay experience. Oh, okay. Most of the people we talked to, it was horrible. Well, yeah, usually that first time, you have no idea really how it's going to feel or what, what's going to happen because you've never yeah. done it before unless you know, you've watched a ton of porn. And Actually, I've never watched porn until I was maybe 40 or something. But um, yeah, it can be a very scary first time too. And did you have an orgasm the yeah. first time or did it take years for you to figure out how to do that? No, I did not have an orgasm the first time I had it. My partner asked me if I did and I lied and I said no because, oh. yeah. Um, and no, it wasn't for, I, I actually don't remember my having my first orgasm. I don't remember when it was. I remember my first orgasm, actually. I'd been having sex since 15 years old regularly. I loved having sex mm-hmm. with, with guys, uh, mostly. And... When I was 21, so I'd been having sex for six years already, I actually experienced an orgasm and I didn't really realize that that's what an orgasm was. <laughs> and mm-hmm. then when I had it, I knew that's what it was. So I was having sex, yeah. which I, we're going to be talking about people pleasers because I was in it t- to please. Oh, so yeah. that's one of the topics yes. that I know I've yeah. resolved in my yeah. later, later years. Later on in the show, <laughs> we're going to talk about faking orgasms <laughs> and people pleasing and all that other stuff because it's so so important but um have you ever written about some of your own sexual experiences we're going to talk about them a little bit later in more detail but you know do you you come clean with everyone about how and where you like your sexual pleasure yeah i do um so i write a whole bunch of different kinds of articles some of them are like hey here's what the research says about the g-spot and says about squirting and some of them are you know i had an article that i wrote about people pleasing published in refinery 29 and that was much more personal and about my own experiences of really struggling with people pleasing um both during sex and just in general Um, And struggling with performance anxiety. Um, And so, yeah, I do write about my own experiences. And I also, um, on social media, talk a fair bit about my own personal experiences. Cool, cool. Okay, one more question and then we get into people, please. uh, Yeah, I know you talked about the shame and guilt that you uh, also discovered when you were younger and and experienced when you were younger. But uh, many people have the same thing. But what are the general reasons why people have that shame and guilt when they're having sex? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, From what I see as a sexuality educator and from my own personal experiences, a lot of people have shame and guilt about sex 
and sexuality because they have learned oftentimes, but not always, through different religions in particular that um, sex and certain kinds of sex and being sexual is wrong Um, and things like masturbating is wrong. And I also want to add that, um, you know, I I did not grow up um, religious at all. But like generally living in the United States and the culture that we live in, I still really absorbed a lot of um, Puritan ideas about sex and sexuality. Um, So oftentimes it's like generally from culture that people end up feeling shame and guilt about sexual and sexuality. Um, And, and so Sometimes that comes from religions, but then also there are things that are, there are ideas that our culture has about sex and sexuality, um, about bodies, about how they should look, about how they should perform, about being able to orgasm, about how often one, quote, should have sex or shouldn't have sex, um, about, you know, being able to squirt, about being able to have an erection, how long your erection should last for, et cetera, et cetera. So there are also those cultural ideas that we have, and oftentimes people feel shame and guilt because in some way or another, they or their body does not match up to the ideas that we have about sex, sexuality, and bodies. Mm. Um, And then lastly, people also can experience shame and guilt around sexuality from sexual trauma. Yeah, absolutely. So um, our listeners know that we've been swingers for over 15 years. And in our world of the alternative lifestyle, um, there are compatible people for everyone. And we don't see a lot of shaming and a lot of um, judging Mm -hmm. and anything like that. Because first of all, like we spend a lot of time at Hedo or on Bliss Cruises or at Desire. And when everybody is walking around naked, everybody is the same, right? A body is a body. Mm -hmm. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just so cool to see a different segment of the population, unfortunately, it's very underground, who really know how to get along and, you know, deal with a person or, or get along with a person based on who they are, not what they look like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also very confident people in, in the lifestyle. I would say most people are uh, have a lot more confidence than the average person. So. And, and people who know how to ask for what they want. I yeah. mean, I do it all the time. Yeah. Sometimes I, I, I've <laughs> learned very, very well how to accept a no, right? Well, well it does happen, it right? It does honey? happen. It does happen. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, it's just so cool hearing what you have to say, which is, you know, uh, almost, you know, a description of the general demographics of the regular world and then here we live in the world of alternative lifestyle and swinging and there's um, a lot less judgment in, yeah. the, in our world mm-hmm. i'm not saying nobody judges because mm-hmm. we all do Absolutely. you know it doesn't come out often but uh, we keep it under control and we try to keep an open mm-hmm. mind more than the average joe i would say so do you think this shaming mm-hmm. and guilt goes away or is it something that someone has to live with forever I do think that it can go away. Absolutely. And I also will be very honest that sometimes that can be a 
long process Mm -hmm. and a messy and uncomfortable and challenging process. And I mean, for me, I definitely feel a lot less shame and guilt about sex and sexuality, but it still comes up. Like it still rears its head sometimes. And when it does, it can be like really uncomfortable and unpleasant. And even then I still feel like, you know, the sort of typical onion metaphor of like, sometimes I still peel back layers and I'm like, what the heck? I didn't know that like, there was a whole nother layer there that I had to, that I had to work on. Expose. Yeah, exactly. And I think as we grow in age and get more wise, there's always another layer that we can expose. So in all different aspects of of our own lives and our sexuality. So that's good to keep the open mind and keep working on ourselves Mm -hmm. to get a little bit better every year. And that's a good goal. Absolutely. So, yeah. so Ella, you know, I, I read your article in Refinery29 uh, about people pleasing and, and I want to get into it. And there's some really, really great points in there and, and it's really, really well written. And I, I, I you know, okay. I suggest to anyone out there to go find it, read it. It's a, you know, very quick read. But just tell us quickly, what is people pleasing and why do people do it? Yeah. So, um, well, also, thank you so much for those kind words. I really appreciate it. Um, So people pleasing is doing something for other people at the expense of your own needs, oftentimes out of the desire to be liked by somebody. So that means... um, You know, uh, so in the article I talk a lot about, and I've also mentioned so far, I am, I call myself a recovering people pleaser. So like for a couple of years now, I've been really working on my people pleasing tendencies and habits. And so for me, you know, like a day to day, simple example of people pleasing is somebody's like, Hey, Ella, where do you want to go get food? And I'm like, Oh, I'm down for whatever. But like in reality, I only want to eat pizza or tacos and I'm not interested in having a sandwich or like whatever, whatever, whatever. Right. So that's a small example of like or or maybe they'll say, hey, I really want to get pizza. Are you OK with that? And I'll be like, yeah, totally. But like I really don't want pizza in that moment. Right. So that's a really small example of how um, people pleasing is prioritizing somebody else's wants or desires or needs at the expense of my own needs. So Carol, when, when you were, um, so Carol, when you were growing up, um, you started having sex at a young age. Our listeners know that um, at 15 you were sexually active and you loved giving head. Mm-hmm. Was it at the expense of you getting pleasure? Well, giving head and sexuality wasn't the only a form of people pleasing that I did, but it absolutely was very obvious to myself even that uh, I really, I did like giving head. I really did. Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly because of the feedback that I got and the reinforcement that they mm-hmm. like me and that they liked what I'm doing for them. Mm-hmm. So I was always mm-hmm. offering up, can I suck your cock? You know, can, I love sucking right. cock. Can I suck your cock? It was my way right. of also getting attention, uh, but also mm-hmm. making sure that that person wasn't going to dump me or leave me or reject me because I'm a good uh-huh. cocksucker. Right. Mm-hmm. So when we, when we started going out, um, you, you know, were doing the same thing. And I love eating pussy. And I had to, on a couple of occasions, say, just stop. I want to do you. And you were like, no, no. And it's like, mm-hmm. no, I want to give you pleasure. And it was hard for you, wasn't it? Well, at the beginning, yes, absolutely. And then I learned how to accept pleasure from other people. But the kind of sex that mm-hmm. I'd had all those years was really me focusing on somebody else's pleasure. 
Mm, yeah, exactly. Um, so a couple of things are coming to mind as I'm hearing you talk about that. One, that it can be very hard for people who are people pleasers to receive pleasure, especially if your partner in your mind is not already satisfied. Um, receiving pleasure can be really uncomfortable and really awkward. Um, and the other thing that you just said about really their pleasure, that's what you mentioned, right, girl? Yeah. Um, I, I completely relate to like, for the first, like first several years that I was having sex, I was only focused on what my partners wanted. I was only focused on trying to like guess and anticipate and think of what their needs and desires were and then trying to meet those needs to the extent that I never even, it never crossed my mind to think about what I liked and didn't like. Um, it took me like, yes, yeah, several years to actually be like, what are the things that I do and don't like in bed? And also once I even started asking myself that question, because it was something that I had like really suppressed, it took me a long time to figure out what those things were that I actually did and didn't like. Yeah. And I, well, like I mentioned earlier that I had been having sex for six years and I hadn't had an orgasm mm -hmm. that wasn't just out mm -hmm. of, out of coincidence. It was me always right. focusing on their pleasure and not even allowing myself right. to have it. Cause I didn't really know how to have, I didn't even masturbate at that time. I didn't really even right. know. So having the sex right. was about me right. finding someone to love me, like me, not leave yeah. me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I also didn't masturbate for several years while I was having partner for the first several years while I was having partnered sex and masturbation for me once I started masturbating was a very helpful tool for me for figuring out the things that I did and didn't like mm -hmm. so Ella how do you turn it around how did you turn it around <laughs> um yeah that's a really great question and so one of the thing biggest things for me and um I hear a lot of other sexuality educators talk about this too for advice for people pleasers and um, Sarah Casper of Comprehensive Consent um, was also mentioned this in the article that I wrote is if you are a people pleaser, one of the best things you can do to try to break this habit is to start paying attention to what you want and what you need in non-sexual situations and asking for it. So we can call this low stakes situation. We might see hot sex as a high stakes situation where you might be less comfortable with the person. It might be a really intimidating moment to say and ask for what you want. But a low stakes situation for me might be like um, when my best friend asked me what movie I want to watch. So Sarah Casper says, in that moment, in this really comfortable moment, really check in with yourself and be honest about, yeah, what would feel really good for me right now? And then share that. And the reason it can be helpful to do it in these more comfortable moments is because it might, A, be easier to actually access the thing that you want, right? Sometimes it can be hard to know what we do and don't want. And so a more comfortable moment, it might be easier to know like the movie, TV show, or food that you want to eat, um, where during sex, it might be a lot harder to figure that out if if especially if you have a history of people pleasing. Um, so I know that it can sound small and almost frustrating to be like, the best way to stop people pleasing in the bedroom is by 
telling your friends that you want pizza. I know that that can sound like a, maybe like oversimplified or almost slow and like frustrating response, but um, noticing what you want and asking for it is a skill. And so we have to practice this skill and get better at this skill and doing it in the ease, the moments that feel easiest um, can be one of the best ways to build that skill. So, so I'm, I'm, before I get to a point that you wrote in your article, um, in the swinging lifestyle, we need to be great communicators and we need to tell people what we want because if we're going to play with a different partner, um, uh, she doesn't know how I like my cock suck. He doesn't know how Carol right. likes her pussy licked or her clit licked. And mm-hmm. you, you wrote something here, which, which is something we practice all the time in swinging situations. And it says here, you're go- you employ your all-time favorite strategy, which is one-word requests. Can you, can mm. you just, you know, in, in a very short um, dialogue, tell us what these one-word requests are and how powerful they are? Yeah, sure. So one-word requests um, is something that I learned from Allison Moon, who's the author of Girl Sex 101. And one-word requests are basically as they sound. It's one word that you use to make a request. So examples of one-word requests are higher, more, softer, slower, faster, lower, left, right? Um, And one of the reasons that I love one-word requests as somebody who is a recovering people pleaser and has really struggled to say anything at all during sex in the past is saying one word at times is the least intimidating thing, right? Like if I'm afraid to tell my part, if I'm nervous to tell my partner what I want and that's very intimidating and uncomfortable for me, just saying one word is like the most comfortable and easiest, most possible thing for me to do. So I love one word requests because if you're somebody who really struggles to ask for what you want, sometimes framing it as like, just try one word can make it feel much easier and more doable. I know when another woman is sucking my cock or giving me a hand job, the one thing I like using is wetter. <laughs> or faster mm-hmm. or slower. Right, but wetter, my cock loves to be wet and slimy and, you know, mm-hmm. get some lube, put it on it. So these one word requests are, are something we practice all the time. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. also harder or deeper or faster or stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> enough. Or yeah. yeah. Hold on. Right. Yeah. All of those yeah. things. Yeah. But you know, what yeah. I found hard for me at first when I started to really actually enjoy sex was the fact that I didn't know what I liked. I didn't know what I wanted. I didn't know what would work because well, I eventually learned how to masturbate. Actually, I started masturbating yeah. in my second pregnancy. I don't know why I got really horny in my second pregnancy. And mm. I really masturbated a lot at that time. Um, but I didn't really stop and think what was working. I masturbated the same way every single time, which is so different than being with a partner. Mm. So I couldn't really translate that feeling of my Mm. masturbating into a partnered sex situation so I kind of had to eventually I realized that I have to learn how how that's all working how to translate that and so sometimes when Mm. I was on the verge of an orgasm with a partner like when I was with David I would think about how my vibrator felt and what it that what sensation did that bring me and I would try Mm. to get my head to think of that and then boom, it released. So it's yeah. hard when you don't know what you want. You don't even know what kind of words to use, higher, faster, left, right, up, down. Yes. I didn't know. 
So you still have to figure it out before you know what to say and get brave enough to say it. Uh, Yeah, I, I relate to that so much. And I actually remember I had one experience, like, again, sort of early on in um, having partnered sex where my partner was like, what do you like? Yeah. And I, yeah, well, and I was also like overcome with like shame and embarrassment in that moment. Cause I was like, I don't know. And I feel so embarrassed that I don't know. Like, I feel like I'm supposed to know, um, to me, like also the idea of being like, quote, sexually inexperienced felt like it was like really undesirable or unacceptable. Mm -hmm. I remember being asked, I mean, later in life, we got divorced, uh, not me and David, but uh, me and David went through divorces uh, when we were in our early 40s. And so at that time, mm-hmm. I was dating and seeing other men, including David at the time, and we've been together ever since. But I remember at that time, so I'm a grown woman, 42 years old, having on a date, having sex with somebody, and he asked me what mm-hmm. I liked. And honestly, I was in that position that you just said, and yeah. I didn't know at 42 years old. So I just yeah. said, oh, I like everything. And again, just being Mm -hmm. a people pleaser, just do whatever you want. Again, I was still a people pleaser until I met David and and learned about myself and my body and how to appreciate myself. And then we got into the swinging lifestyle and I was much more open with my sexuality at that time. But I did a huge sexual revolution at 42 years old. We're going to talk about that revolution in a second. (laughs) But Ella, are you a squirter? Yes. Do you remember the first time you squirted? I actually don't think that I do. So, Carol, go ahead. Well, I remember the first time I squirted, and I had no clue what it was. I was sitting on David's face. He had his fingers up my pussy. <laughs> he was licking and moving, and, and next thing you know, yeah. this liquid is coming out, and it's pouring out and all over his face, and he was loving it. He says, oh, my God, this yeah. is amazing. This is squirt. These are things that he had seen on porn, and I told you I don't, yeah. never watched porn. So I had no clue what it was, and I really had to learn about it. But we have friends who are totally ashamed of squirting. Mm-hmm. It happens naturally, yeah. but... They're ashamed. They want to stop it somehow from happening. Yeah. And that's really, that's but you're, really too you're, bad. you're very cool in swinger situations. You say, okay, if we're going into this position, there's a good chance I'm going to squirt. On and you. what do the guys say? Okay, <laughs> let it happen. And what do the girls say? <laughs> uh, uh. Uh, we have a couple of girlfriends yeah. who love it. Well, yeah, some do. But, but when you I, can control it now. Yeah. Well, when I ride a cock and I, and I ride hard and I'm squirting and I splash, mm-hmm. I go, raincoats mm-hmm. on, raincoats, because it <laughs> splashes everywhere. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not ashamed of my squirting, but I know some girls who actually are. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny that you say that. I think that also something that's like a bit ironic and contradicting for me as a people pleaser is that um, there are certain things like I really enjoy squirting and it feels really good and I like it. And also I still have this sort of bit of internalized like, oh, it's too much for my partner or it's too messy for them. And even though a partner will tell me, I love it, I really like it. um, And, you know, as a people pleaser, you would think I would be like, okay, great, I should do more than that. Even though sometimes I'll have positive reinforcement from a partner that they enjoy something, sometimes there will still be some sort of like internalized shame that will keep me from being able to fully enjoy that. Yeah, I can absolutely imagine that as well. 
Wow, this has been a great segment. Just let's remind everybody that this is The Sexy Lifestyle. We are Carol and David, and we're having an amazing discussion with sex educator and writer, Ella Dorval Hall. Coming up next is our favorite segment, Great Sex Matters, so don't go away. But right now, we're going to tell everyone about topless travel and the amazing trips that we have planned for next year. Absolutely, and if you're looking for the sexiest and most erotic vacation experiences ever, then you simply must book with topless travel. From Hedonism 2 in Jamaica, Desire in Cancun, and all the Bliss Cruise adventures, topless travel needs to be your number one choice. Their trips are all about pushing boundaries, exploring your naughty side, and meeting and partying with tons of sexy fun people. And let's shout out to all their exclusive sexy host couples, including Party Mark. And they're there to ensure that you have one hell of a sexy vacation. Absolutely. And you know you'll find us on many of the amazing topless travel trips. But listen up. We'll be back at Hedonism 2 for one of their sexy silver events for a pre-Halloween week-long bash from October 21st to October 28th, 2023. And we would love for you to join us there. And new for two... And new for 2024, Topless Travel is putting together not one, but two bucket list trips from which we'll be broadcasting. First, from March 2nd to 13th in 2024, we'll be exploring the ancient pyramids of Egypt, followed by a seven-day riverboat cruise down the Nile to Jordan. Absolutely. And on the second bucket list trip, we're going to be heading to Kenya for an African safari to witness the Great Migration glamping in the wild savanna from from September 2nd to September 11, 2024. Space is limited on both these trips. Absolutely. Um, go book them now because I think they're almost 70% sold out already. So if you don't want to miss these amazing adventures with other sexy, open-minded friends, then go and book your room today. Do it before it's too late. For more information about these trips or any of the topless travel events, go to thesexylifestyle.com and click on the topless travel events link to book the sexiest and most erotic vacation ever. Ever, ever, ever. All right, back. You know, this is The Sexy Lifestyle. We are Carol and David, and it's time to get back to our show um, because it's time for our favorite part of the show where we get to talk about great sex because... Well, great sex matters, and we all deserve it. And now we're going to get into discussing desire, arousal, and libido, and how the conflicting feelings that can sometimes hold us back from enjoying a healthy sex life. So, Ella, what would you say about sexual desire and the different types of sexual desire? Yeah, so um, I remember, you know, when we were talking earlier about, like, as I was becoming a sexuality educator and, like, some of the different things I was learning about, one of the books that I read was Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski. Have either of you read that? I haven't read it yet, but we know of it. It's an amazing book. And for me, it was so amazing because it felt like it named so many of the experiences that I was having, so many of the things that I was struggling with and explained the science behind them, which was really powerful for me at the time. And one of the things that it talked about was the three different types of sexual desire. And so um, the three different types of sexual desire that Emily Nagoski talks about is spontaneous desire, responsive desire, and context-dependent desire. And the reason that this was so significant for me is because a lot of us learn that sexual desire is this really fiery thing that happens out of nowhere, right? Like the thought of sex just comes across our mind and then all of a sudden we want it. 
And like we see in movies all the time that displayed is like a character looks at another character from across the bar. And then like the next scene is them making out or having sex. And so this kind of desire that I'm describing is called spontaneous desire. And that's what we really see depicted as what desire is, period, in media usually, right? So we learn oftentimes sexual desire is like very spontaneous. It's very fiery. But what was really powerful for me was learning from Emily Nagoski that there's also something called responsive desire. And responsive desire is when you need to be exposed to some sort of sexual stimulus. So that's anything that your brain codes as sex related that can be visuals, sounds, touches, smells. So we have to be exposed to some sort of sexual stimulus in order to desire or want sex. So that could mean you have to, or I guess it's speaking from my own experience, that could mean um, I need to like start making out or watching porn or using a toy or having some kind of touch or stimulus that I enjoy to then get turned on. And um, for me, it was really confusing to have responsive desire because it was I was like, um, you know, I never really experienced that like spontaneous, fiery, out of the blue kind of desire. So I was like, what's what's wrong with me? Am I broken? Um, so it, it was really helpful for me to learn about responsive desire. And then the third type of desire is context dependent desire. And context dependent desire is pretty much a combination of spontaneous and responsive desire. It means that in different contexts or at different times, you experience desire differently. So at one time, maybe your desire is really spontaneous and at another time it might be more responsive. One of the examples that Emily Nagoski gives that um, a lot of people tend to relate to is that at the beginning of relationships, um, sexual or romantic relationships, we see uh, oftentimes people experience desire much more spontaneously. Like getting turned on happen, happens much more quickly. Whereas later on into a relationship, sometimes desire becomes more responsive. And that's why we have to work on our relationships. But we, we learned about uh, spontaneous and responsive desire from Dr. Lori Batito, uh, who has a TED Talk mm. about this. And she actually says that most people with penises have spontaneous desire, and most people mm. with vaginas have responsive desire. And you can almost imagine mm. that because you can see right away when the penis is erect, but you can't tell if the uh, mm. vagina is aroused, and sometimes it's not even ready to be penetrated. It takes time. But also that mm. makes sense to me because a lot of people with vaginas need foreplay, and that's the foreplay mm. that you're talking about to be responsive to the foreplay so that they could be ready to be penetrated. And it kind of makes mm. sense. Um, mm. So, yeah, I, we, we enjoyed listening to that TED Talk that, from Dr. Lori Batito. And, and mm -hmm. penetration is not just with a penis. It's with a toy. It's with fingers. It's with anything. That mm -hmm. vagina and that um, um, vulva area needs to be warmed up the blood it has to be mm -hmm. aroused and those guys who with their hard cock decide hey i'm gonna get in there right away so i can get off they're not gonna have a great sexual experience it's just mm -hmm. not gonna work mm -hmm. and something that i also want to add is that when we're talking about sexual desire or responsive desire or spontaneous desire we are 
we're really actually talking about the mental wanting part, right? Like the desire for it, the mental yearning for it. And arousal and wanting are related, but they're actually two different things. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes we actually may find that we have that wanting, but there isn't physically the um, erection or the lubrication um, and expanding in the vagina that we're talking about, right? So I just want to add that um, I want to add that when we're talking about spontaneous desire and responsive desire and context-dependent desire, we're really talking about what we need in order to create the mental wanting, not just the physical right. um, the physical signs that we, the physical arousal. Yeah, and that's really the, the wanting is like more like when we talk about libido, and that's something mm-hmm. that... Uh, I went. I struggled through going through menopause, where the wanting mm-hmm. um, definitely. Mm-hmm. I'm, I won't say went away completely, but definitely declined. But if I got mm-hmm. into it and then got aroused, I mm-hmm. still had great sex once yeah. I got started. So you're right. Mm-hmm. The wanting is different from the arousal, for sure. Mm-hmm. Now you also had mentioned earlier about. Um, Emily Nagoski and her book, and and you had talked to us about this dual control model. Can you explain Mm. that a little bit about how that relates to sex? Yeah, sure. So um, the dual control model was developed in the 1990s by Eric Jensen, actually, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing their name correctly, and John Bancroft, also not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, sorry to those folks, at the Kinsey Institute. Um, And so the dual control model is this mechanism in our brain that sort of makes sense of and describes how the wanting happens, how the desire for sex happens. And so the dual control model, Emily, is just is comprised of a couple of different parts. One of them is what Emily Nagoski calls the accelerator, like the accelerator pedal on a car um and she uses the word accelerator for the longer term the sexual excitation system but we'll call it accelerator because that's a little bit easier (laughs) to say and remember (laughs) so the accelerator is this mechanism in our brain that's constantly scanning the environment looking for reasons to get turned on so it's constantly scanning the environment for Um, sexual stimulus or anything that our brain codes as sex related. And then there's also another part of the dual control model called the, what Emily Nagossi calls the breaks or the sexual inhibition system. And so just like the accelerator, the breaks is a mechanism in our brain that's constantly scanning the environment, looking for reasons that it's not safe to get turned on. And so the dual control model is essentially this idea that sexual desire happens from um, like this play of the brakes and the accelerator happening in our brain. Um, And one of the things that people often think if they're like, if their libido is lower than perhaps it typically is, or maybe they feel in some way or another that they have, quote, low libido. Um, I can talk later about why I just put low libido in quotes. But um, 
people often think, oh, the reason I'm not getting turned on or I'm not experiencing much desire must be because I just don't have enough sexy stuff. Like I must just not have like the right toys or the right candles or the right bath, you know, right? These things that we typically, the turn ons, I must not have enough of those. But um, one of the things that Emily Nagoski talks about in the book is that getting turned on is not just hitting the accelerator, but you actually have to take the brakes off. And taking the brakes off means figuring out the things in your life that hit your brake system, that tell you it's not safe to get turned on right now, and removing those things. So a lot of the time, it's stress for people, or it's um, going through an illness, or it's um, the rela- your relationship dynamic with the person perhaps maybe not feeling very connected to them, feeling really disconnected from them. A lot of those are different things that hit, can hit somebody's brake. And so no matter how many sexy things you have hitting the accelerator, no matter how many of those like hot things you have, if you still have these huge things hitting the brakes, you're not going to be able to get turned on or experience desire. Yeah. And how do you go about taking your foot off the brake? <laughs> well, you know, Um, I love this metaphor. And sometimes for me, I'm like, damn, it makes it sound like it's so simple. (laughs) But for me, like when I'm going through a really stressful day or week or month with work, for example, it's actually really it can be really hard and um, challenging to take the work stress off of the break. Right. So um, Emily Nagoski has a couple of different worksheets on her website that help you figure out what are the things that hit your gas and what are the things that hit your brakes? And one of the worksheets is about reflecting on one of your favorite sexual experiences and figuring out what were the things about it that made it so great? What was your mental state like at the time? Were you on vacation? What was your relationship like with the person that you were having sex with? And so a lot of what you, a lot of taking the things off the brake is getting to know what are the things that hit my accelerator and what are the things that hit my brake and then figuring out how to and then figuring out how to manage stress figuring out how to resolve conflict in your relationship um and things like that mm-hmm. that sounds like it is um that's great advice so in this dual control um situation is the sexual desire still, is there still ways that you can boost your sexual desire, even though you still have your foot on the brake? So one of the things that um, Emily Nagasi talks about is that oftentimes it's a matter of taking the things off of the brake in order to experience desire. And I think also like, you know, I thinking about my own life, for example, even if I go through a week of being really, really stressed, if I am able to like take a nap and feel really relaxed in that moment, or like I, um, the reason I bring up take a nap is because oftentimes for me, actually, I feel the most like sexual desire Um, when I'm sleeping, because usually when I'm sleepy is when my brain finally gets relaxed and lets go of all the shit that's happening. Then it's finally like, oh, I can be curious about this touch. Like, oh, I can be present and like experience pleasure uh, because my brain is more relaxed. So I guess that's to say when it comes to taking things off of the brakes 
I think that sometimes it's easy to interpret that as like, oh, I just need to like get rid of all of the stress from my job. Oftentimes that's not realistic, yeah, right? Like, yeah. so figuring out some different ways to cope with that or figuring out smaller moments that you can feel less stressed or smaller moments where maybe you feel more connected to your partner, for example. So I was just relating to um, makeup sex and we always joke because I don't like makeup sex mm-hmm. and other people mm-hmm. love makeup sex. And I'm just thinking out loud mm-hmm. that, um, you know, makeup sex for those people who love it is that once their once their argument is resolved, they're, they've pulled uh, everything off the ga- off the break and they're ready right. to go. But for me, it's a yeah. slower way to, you know, to resolve mm-hmm. my conflict with my partner. Very often I'm Painful. still, <laughs> I'm still angry inside or still not, yeah. not quite settled, you mm-hmm. know, like, because yeah. we always, you know, when you have an argument with your partner, it's like the worst feeling in your stomach and you know, your life is not right and all yeah. of those things. For me, right. that takes time to cool down. And even though the resolution has happened, I still am not myself yet. So um, yeah. I tell David, no, I'm not that I'm still angry with you, but I haven't cooled off yet. So I can see yeah. that some people can take their foot off the gas, yeah, uh, off the brakes so easier. You could have cooled down. <laughs> Stop it, David. That's not true. <laughs> but I think that's on makeup sex. That seems to make sense. Why don't we try it? Yeah. Well, next time we have an argument, we haven't had an argument in a long time. We haven't. What <laughs> about what good. about middle of the night sex? What's what's the break there? Well, I really like my sleep, and so for me, it's more stressful to be woken up in the night, <laughs> and I know I'm going to be crabby tomorrow. It's not worth it for me. So, how can we get your foot off the break of that one, <laughs> Ella? What do you think? Well, I I would say that. Um, Carol, it sounds like for you, the idea of your sleep getting disrupted and then not feeling the good the next day uh, is an indicator of um, needing to find times for you to have sex together where you don't have that concern. So maybe perhaps it would be more possible for you on a weekend night or if you don't have work the next day. Or maybe it's just not on the table for you, period. But Ella, 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 listen, listen. I wake up in the middle of the night with this massive erection. She doesn't even have to do any work. She just needs to roll over and open her legs and say, you know what? Give me a nice pussy massage with that hard cock. But it just doesn't happen. It does not happen. I'm not interested in that. I, my, my sleep is more important for me. Doesn't. We can have sex. See, we're, we're semi-retired and we're home together all day long, every day, mm-hmm. seven days a week. And we can have sex any other time of I the have, day. I have a solution. What? We're going to go where, like up into Sweden or something, where in the summer it's daylight, like almost all 24 hours of the day, and there won't be any night. But am I sleeping? Oh. So, yeah. <laughs> actually, it's interesting hearing you talk about this. My other thought would be, David, what is it for you that's so arousing about sex in the middle of the night and potentially trying to seek out or recreate those qualities at other times when Carol is more interested. Well, you know, it, it's pro- as it's, opposed to the middle of the night. It's probably that, you know, because it's a little taboo in our relationship, it makes it a little bit hotter and sexier and it's a bit of a chase. Yeah, it yeah. is. It absolutely is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I see. So he can live without it because he's perfectly fine. See how alive he is? I'm alive. Yes. And I'm he's, alive. he's just fine and he is satisfied. And, and we, yeah, we don't complain. Good. But we're always, you know, trying to push boundaries and do things a little bit differently. And um, right. it just happens. Well, right. 
And I, the other thing that you just got to was that the chase is one of the contexts for you that's really exciting. And there are lots of other ways to create the chase. For sure. yeah. and, and my body, my vehicle has no brakes. So I'm always on the accelerator. <laughs> so we, we have mismatched uh, sexual desires. And we one of the things we do do is talk about it all the time. So mm-hmm. one person isn't... Um, uh, feeling like the other person isn't listening to their needs. And, right. and we've gotten really good over 17 years of of trying to find a happy medium. We, we don't always get there. I mean, it's impossible. We're mm-hmm. two different um, people. But, um, you know, we do do well, especially um, 17 mm-hmm. years into our relationship. We find ways to push our boundaries and fulfill some of those fantasies. Yeah, absolutely. So we're getting mm-hmm. to the end of the show. I want to ask two questions. One is there such a thing as too much libido? Or too much desire? No. There is no such thing as too much, too high libido, or too much desire. Um, our culture has a long history of pathologizing. Um, and by pathologizing, I mean um, actually treating, like, quote, too much desire or a certain level of sexual desire as an illness. And we see that through things like sexual addiction treatment and diagnosis. Um, And we also see a lot of those ideas coming from different religions as well, that there's such thing as too much masturbation or too much sexual desire. Um, And also on the other end of that spectrum, I also want to be very clear that there's no such thing as too little sexual desire either. We also have on the other end of the spectrum a lot of pathologization of having little to no sexual desire at all. And that, too, in the same way that having a ton, a ton of interest in sex and a ton of desire for sex is totally natural. Having little to no desire or interest in sex is also totally natural. So, wow. so I like that. I'm, I'm glad you. Sp- I'm glad you put that abs- out there because I don't think I've actually heard right. anybody on our show say that out loud. Mm-hmm. So right. thank you for that. But I'm going to add a little yeah. caveat to that because I'm going to shout out to our friends Alice and Jeff, who are host couples with Topless Travel as well, and we were having this whole discussion on the Bliss Cruise in November um, about anal sex. And she's like, mm. hell no, I'm not doing this. And Jeff, he, he loves anal sex. And she goes, when it comes to sexual fantasies or sexual desires like that, I just outsource it. So in the swinging lifestyle, um, you get to mm. play with other people and you get to talk to your partner and you get to have sex with other people. And when it comes to anal sex, well, they find another couple where Jeff can have anal sex mm-hmm. with another woman and she sucks his cock mm-hmm. or something. And it's what. Um, makes it work for them. And there's a lot of different sexual um, positions and and things that people want to try that might not be something that's for your partner. But that's why we say the alternative lifestyle um, allows people to push their boundaries a little bit more. It's not for everyone, but Mm -hmm. it's fun. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I'm hearing you speak to the fact that like, we are all unique humans that experience sex at different times. Right. And in different ways. And um, it is pretty much impossible to have another person experience to want sex and the same kind of sex with as you at the same time always, right? So there's inherently always a desire discrepancy in relationships. And a lot of us don't learn 
that there are tons of different tools that we can use for meeting those different needs, including things like open relationships. Um, and I also want to shout out to um, the asexual community who I have learned a lot about um, experiencing little to no desire from and who I have learned a lot about the different messages we get about the expectations we experience in terms of how much we quote should want sex or how much is acceptable to want or not want sex. Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. before we ask you for your, your, your final advice, I just want to step back and it's something I, we spoke about on a, many, many shows during the year is that sex does not mean a penis in a vagina or a toy in a vagina or fingers in a vagina or tongue in a vagina or mouth on a cock. There's many, many different ways to have great sexual experiences, great stimulation without actually having an orgasm, without having an ejaculation. We just tried Uh Nuru Massage, which was massaging each other's bodies with our bodies with this amazing gel. And it was it was fantastic. And we didn't have to. Um, insert it, something into something. It was very erotic, but it wasn't sexual per it se. It was. And, by, by definition. Mm. And I want to go back to one of my favorite things, which is kissing. Kissing can be so mm. erotic and so pleasurable mm-hmm. and, and hugging and just those simple things that, you know, sometimes it's just not about getting your pussy pounded or your ass pounded or yeah. a cock in your mouth. It's just about something sensual and lighting and candles. So and pleasurable. try it all. Try it all. It's not yeah. about an orgasm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like there are so many ways I can reflect on how my ability to imagine the things that I want or the things that I like, whether it's just like, pleasure or sexual pleasure has been so clouded by the expectations that I've had about what sex should look like that it has really, really made it so difficult to imagine the things that would truly feel good to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, I also want to shout out, like I'm, I'm loving hearing you describe all these different kinds of intimacy that can be sexual intimacy or other types of intimacy and in terms of like relearning and relearning and reimagining different kinds of intimacy and pleasure that feels really good for us, whether it's sexual or not, I again have learned a lot from the asexual and aromantic communities about the different kinds of intimacy that they are and the, there are, and there is not just sexual intimacy. There's lots of other kinds of in- intimacy. And learning about that can be really helpful for reimagining and reconnecting to and learning what feels really good for us. And I'm sure we're going to start learning more about those kinds of communities as, you know, as they become more mainstream. Right now, it's mostly the sex educators that would talk about it. So I'm hoping that these kinds of discussions will make other people inquire and, and look it up too. So we are coming to the end of the show. And no, it went very quickly with lots of great information from Ella. What would you say would be the top two things that people can do if they feel shame or guilt about sex? Oh, I think that That's a great question. I think for me, and I've seen for a lot of other people, one of the best things is sharing, telling somebody else that you feel guilt and shame 
oftentimes guilt builds and can it builds and can spiral and feel out of control the more that we feel like we need to hide it from people. So whether it's confiding in confiding in somebody you're really close with or a sex educator or another sexuality professional about what you're feeling can really relieve some of the guilt and shame. Wow, that's great. Um, yeah. So sharing, I'm, I'm thinking that a lot of people who have that guilt think they're the only ones and they don't even realize there's so many people out there yeah. that they could share that with yeah. who could understand their situation. Yeah. And it boils down yeah, again I, to communication, right? Mm-hmm. And I think if I, I also know that if you are experiencing a lot of shame and guilt about sex and sexuality, the idea of telling somebody that might sound absolutely fucking horrible. And if that's where you're at, that's totally fine. And you don't need to tell anybody the other thing I would recommend is like listening to or reading or watching videos of other people who have had similar experiences to you if talking about it just sounds absolutely fucking horrible. And if you want to talk about it to somebody who's not meaningful to you or not, you're never going to see right. them again at a bar, a random right. Joe, just start by practicing there. Sometimes you don't even know if you can get the <laughs> words out. So just practice with some random right. Joe and see if that helps relieve some mm-hmm. of the guilt. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. Alrighty, Ella Dorval Hall, thank you so much for an amazing, awesome show sharing all that great information. We're definitely going to have to have you back. Uh, why don't you take a minute and tell everyone how they can find you, your articles, and uh, send you an email if they have to. Yeah, so um, you can find me at my website, which is elladorvalhall.com. Um, gosh, whenever I tell people how to spell my name, it... it, um, it <laughs> It's E-L-L-A-D-O-R-V, as in Victor, A-L-H-A-L-L.com. You can also Google my name or search for me on Instagram. But my website has links to most of the articles that I've published. Um, You can also sign up for my newsletter where I share any offerings that I have. And if you're like, dang, it would be great to tell somebody like Ella the shame and guilt that I'm feeling or the ways I'm struggling with people pleasing. You can send me a message through the contact form on my website. I work one-on-one with people um, and I would love to hear from anybody, whether it's wanting to work together or um, what you thought of our show and um, how you relate to the work that I do. Well, that's great. And of course, if you missed any of that information, you can just go to our website, thesexylifestyle.com, where every one of our guests has their own guest page with all of their information, and you can even contact them from there. Absolutely. So like we did this week, and we do every week with all our great guests, we hope uh, you learned a lot today and got some great information from Ella. Um, If you have any questions at all, you can always send us an email at ask at carolindavid.com. Alrighty, the end of another great show with an amazing guest, Ella Dorval Hall. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. It was really wonderful to talk with you. It was fantastic. And we want to thank all our listeners for being there week in and week out. Join us again next time for another hour of The Sexy Lifestyle, talking about sex, sexuality, sexual health and pleasure, and all the fun ways to spice up your sex life and live happy, healthy, and always horny. Well, that's it for our show today. Carol and I and Ella send you lots of love and great sex. Please stay safe. And of course, stay sexy, everyone. Until next time.
you for joining Carol and David for this week's edition of The Sexy Lifestyle. We've got another one lined up next Friday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The weekend is just around the corner, so try something new, spice it up, and you just might have the best sex ever. <laughs>